Today's episode of this very special Ringer podcast is brought to you by SeatGeek, our presenting sponsor and the only fan-friendly app for buying and selling sports and music tickets. SeatGeek makes buying tickets on your phone a total snap. With just two taps, you can instantly buy tickets to an event that same day, have your tickets delivered straight to your phone, and enter the event without ever having to print a ticket. And if you can't go to a game or a show, you can sell your tickets directly from the app in less than 30 seconds. With SeatGeek, there's no guesswork. You'll know exactly where you're sitting, what you will pay, and whether or not you're getting a good deal, all right from your phone. So drop your old ticket app and experience buying and selling tickets the way it should be. To start using SeatGeek, download the free SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com. very special edition of a ringer podcast this is what we'll call a reasonable pod my name is sean <laughs> fennessy i am the editor-in-chief of the ringer i'm here with two other staffers from the ringer justin charity a staff writer and donnie quack our east coast bureau chief this is a reasonable pod because we're here to talk about reasonable doubt saturday marks 20 years since the release of jay-z's first album which is staggering and makes me feel terribly old to commemorate uh, this anniversary Myself and uh, the two other guys on the line here wrote pieces celebrating the album, thinking about the album, breaking down the album, trying to understand why we still think about this album. So we're going to talk a little bit about those stories. We're going to talk a little bit about how we think about Jay now. We're going to talk a little bit about our favorite songs. Let's start with uh, the piece that you, Donnie, wrote about the reception of the album at the time, which even though the album has become kind of legendary in a lot of people's minds, wasn't necessarily perceived that way at first. Isn't that right? Totally. Uh, it was basically the purpose of my piece was to provide some context as to how Jay was perceived uh, by the media as a rookie. Because obviously in 2006, well, actually in 2016, he's corny again. So, but <laughs> for the, for the majority of the last 20 years, he's back. <laughs> he's been the coolest. So uh, in 1996, he wasn't the coolest. And in fact, uh, you know, one of the writers I spoke to, Charlie Braxton, who wrote the original review for Reasonable Doubt in the Source, uh, I talk about how, or he talks about, Charlie does, about how he perceived Jay as a sidekick because he first came across Jay as the backup guy for jazz, uh, who was Jay's mentor and had a pretty unsuccessful career. In fact, I was talking to Justin offline about who would be the Jay-Z in the modern day? And we couldn't really come up with one. Well, we were talking about maybe like Joey Badass's dude or something. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I know. That's a sad I didn't state wanna, of affairs. I didn't want to compare Joey unfavorably to Jazz, so no disrespect to Joey or Jazz. But the point is, Jay was just a side dude in a Hawaiian shirt. And, not, and you know, like he had records uh, before Reasonable Doubt, and he had talent, but he wasn't thought of as cool. So, mm -hmm. you know, fast forward to the release of his album and he's there and swathed in a black Italian suit with a white scarf. And it's this whole mafiosa kingpin image. And there was a disconnect there, uh, not only for Braxton, but I think for a lot of fans who up until that point had only known Jay as Hawaiian Sophie guy. Was Charlie not really willing to accept the transition that Jay was trying to make there? Uh, I think the problem was for Jay, uh, or maybe not a problem actually, but what was happening in 96 was that mafioso kingpin godfather shit was, 
you know, popping, and it was a trend. And I think for Braxton, it appeared that Jay-Z was hopping on this trend after having been a, you know, diggity-siggity, original flavor type guy, <laughs> a backpack type guy, and now all of a sudden he was, you know, Al Capone. And uh, I think it was a little incongruous with what he first saw of him and what many people saw of him because, again, he was a background dude. I mean, watch the jazz videos and, uh, and you'll see Jay there looking like, you know, <laughs> the, the, the dude on the side. Yeah, he was he was kind of a goofball. The whole Anne Sophie video is especially damning. He just that he he's unrecognizable. He seems like a completely different person. What um what did Charlie end up writing? What what would, what did that review sound like? Well, the review it's four mics, famously not five, and obviously everybody knows that the source five mic scale and the five mics was coveted at the time. Um, the review, if you read it today, I mean, it's basically it's just. You know, here's a guy with some talent. His subject matter is tired. It's, uh, I think he uses the phrase criminal melodrama, same old criminal melodrama. Um, it's it's a rev- It's like, in, in a nutshell, it's this is decent. You should listen to it. He has promise. But it's not, you know, this is a must or this guy's next or anything like that. It seems like a lot of the reviews were received, were sort of, pushed in that direction at that time obviously you are an old hand at, at rap journalism as well like i'm glad you didn't say old head no no I, I would That's never better. old hand you're an experienced <laughs> yeah. man with, with great experience um but you know did that seem like the way that people were responding to the record at the time did that seem accurate you know you point out in your piece that charlie was chosen in part because he was from the south and he wasn't necessarily willing to um right you know he, he didn't have the same east coast bias say that maybe a lot of traditional source reviewers might have had Right. I think, I mean, part of the thrust, I guess, of my piece is that the way you perceived Jay in 96 was based on context, and there was different contexts uh, by which people uh, viewed him. Um, so, you know, like for Charlie, Charlie's fresh years, it was just kind of like, okay, here's a guy that's graduated from sidekick to kingpin. And then I also talked to Jeff Mao. Uh, who uh, worked for Ego Trip and also wrote a profile of Jay for Vibe. And and his perception was kind of like Jay is a contender for the throne. And uh, I write about how in, you know, It Was Written, which was Nas's, you know, highly anticipated follow-up to Elmatic, it came out the week after Reasonable Doubt. So, uh, you know, Jeff kind of saw it as a changing of the guard. I mean, not that's a little on the nose, but sort of uh, a a contender rising to face the champ. Yeah, there's something, there's a really smart distinction in there about Jay-Z's age when he released his first album and, and Nas's age by the time he released his second album and that there's a, a sort of like a maturity and a, a calm and like a, he, there doesn't seem to be any pop reach on Reasonable Doubt, whereas right. on Illmatic, you know, Jeff Mao notes that the first couple of samples on the first couple of songs on the album kind of took the air out of everybody's lungs when they first heard it, right? Totally, totally. And actually, this is something that Justin and I were talking about offline, too, because Charlie had, uh, contends that Ain't No uh, doesn't belong on Reasonable Doubt. Which is a bugged out opinion about, like, that's what struck me the most about, like, <clears throat> the, the different conversations that Donnie had about <clears throat> uh, about people who, were, with people who reviewed the album initially. Because, you know, Ain't No feels like, 
a huge record in retrospect. And I, it's, you know, I listened to both Ain't No and Brooklyn's Finest. And, like, either of those, I guess you could say, don't fit with Ski Beats, like, s- smooth jazz flip aesthetic. And yet they seem totally, they seem totally crucial to... Um, that album. I guess most of the records on Reasonable Doubt seem crucial to Reasonable Doubt, except for maybe like 22 twos, which is which feels kind of like this holdover from like the Who early song. Shut the f up. <laughs> <laughs> no, but back to the age distinction really quick. It is an important point that Nas, when Illmatic came out, was barely 20 years old, and uh, Jay Z, when Reasonable Doubt came out, was 26 years old. It's a world of difference. Uh, Jeff. Mao even says in the article, if Jay-Z had a debut album at age 20, it would sound like The Originators, which means it, you know, not very good. But that's, okay, so my question is, is that would Charlie, like, would, I, I guess I'm sort of head-scratching wondering, like, would, would an Originators Jay-Z, you know, feature-length debut have impressed the source? Because, like, I... I nah, it would be like UMDs, you know, yeah. like, something like that. UMCs, I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I don't think that that would necessarily be a bad thing, but it would not have created the mythology around Jay that he easily developed because of this record. You know, I mean, he, totally. I'm sure he would enjoy it if people just forgot about every <laughs> song he recorded before Reasonable Doubt, right? I mean, you, you know, some of us... Maybe, I mean, you know, like... Can I get open as a fire if song? If you listen you to the stop. songs, like, he is exhibiting a lyrical dexterity that is right. fresh, you know, but it's fresh for 92 or 93, you know. Right. right. And it also is, it's, it doesn't fit his persona, you know. The, totally. The speed is speed, even though he, he has the ability to be that fast and that, that dexterous, doesn't mean that that's who he wants to be. He wants to be laid back in the cut, powerful, calm. So, right. And that's what's funny about 22 twos. We were talking about this before. It's like he kind of left that on reasonable doubt just as I still got this. I can do this if I want to do it. I'm not going to do it for the whole album, but here's one track. For you fat beats kids, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. You you also kind of wrote about Notorious B.I.G.'s debut and Illmatic's debut and that sort of troika, that that triumvirate of East Coast debuts. And, right. you know, there, there were a lot of conversations in our Slack channel about our power rankings of those three records. And not a single <laughs> person in the Slack channel put Reasonable Doubt above Illmatic or, or Ready to Die, which I, I yeah, thought was interesting. Fair. It's fair. I mean, like my argument, I've listened to the album like a dozen or so times over the last three days, you know, working on this story. And uh, my argument has been that I think it's aged more gracefully. It's aged better than those two albums. Uh, I think just sonically in <laughs> I hear a wow. Yeah. But I hear, you know, like sonically, Charity got 90, a troll 96 now. rap was different than 94 rap that two years. I mean, we talked about the age distinction, but when you just talk about 94 rap to 96 rap, you know, it's like there's a evolution there of the way songs are structured and how melodic. I mean, it's all it's subjective, obviously. But uh, you know, there's a couple tracks on Illmatic. I mean, I'm gonna get hit by a lightning strike here, but I don't really listen to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I don't feel like there's a wasted breath or moment on Reasonable Doubt, and that's my opinion. Justin, what do you think? I mean, Reasonable Doubt, I, I, I kind of get where Donnie's coming from. Like, Reasonable Doubt of those three albums is very consistently milky. <laughs> that is, I will go with milky is my description of Reasonable Doubt. And and that's great. And I feel like maybe, it, it's also just like the literary perspective of Reasonable Doubt uh, it is, like, 
every every year I age on this earth, maybe it's just like the perspective of that album holds up better to to me than like uh, all of the impressive literary description on an album like Illmatic, which is impressive in its own way, but isn't wise in the same way. That Reasonable Doubt is a very wise yeah. And Illmatic and Ready to Die are very uh, rooted in this, their settings, in their respective settings. It's very much, this is 94 in Queensbridge, this is 94 in Bed-Stuy, and, and Reasonable Doubt feels kind of timeless. You know, I mean, it's about mafia fantasies, really, right? That's the thing is it is actually the most grandiose. And, and in some ways, I don't want to use the word dishonest, but it seems fantastical in a way that... It's totally fantastical. Yeah, totally and like, uh, yeah, it's fantasy, really. I mean, you know, we'd find out later that a lot of it was, I guess, I mean, some mythology in there, but some real life backing, I guess. And maybe that was a transition to Justin, uh, what you wrote about. Well, yeah, I, you know, Justin, I want to talk about how the, the tension between... Nas and Jay eventually manifested itself with Jay, you know, saying rhyming about your tech on the dresser. Like those things actually came to the fore where Jay's real life experience seemed meaningful. But what you wrote about is sort of how his real life experiences and the way that he met, he interpreted those things in Reasonable Doubt kind of laid the blueprint for what a superstar rap record could be or should be. You know, how did you approach your story? Well, so I went back and and read uh basically like profiles of Jay, not just from 1996, but from 1996 through about 2000, and then a few like, you know, 2009 profiles. But um, it's funny that Donnie brings up the point of, that both of you bring up the point of honesty and like how fantastical reasonable doubt is, because I think maybe in a literal way, right? In a, in a, in a way, in the way of literal description of things that may or may not have happened in Jay-Z's life, we can parse that. But what strikes me of reading, like, you know, uh, Jay's conversations with Harry Allen or Chris X or Sandra Hunter and the, the first, the 1996 stress cover story, is that he's actually pretty honest and remarkably sort of, um, uh, he has remarkable foresight, right, in talking about what his vision is. Like, 1996 and beyond, you, you go back and read those interviews with Jay-Z and he's saying that like, look, the reason I make music is it's a hustle. Like we're going to we're going to like launch, you know, clothing and we're going to get into sports and we're going to make money on all of this stuff. And this is stuff that he's saying like in the year in, in, in 1999. This is stuff he's saying like in the year after Hard Knock Life comes out. Can I interject a hot take real quick? I, th I think it's because Jay-Z didn't smoke weed. <laughs> Seriously, what, what do you mean by or, that? Or very rarely smoked weed. He just had a clarity of thought and lucidity that his peers didn't. Okay, hot takeover. Yeah, hot takeover. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think I, I mean I think that's a real thing. Like I've worked. I mean, you know, I I used to work in public relations, and I've worked on on mergers, right? And you have talking points for a thing like that, like when you announce an IPO. And Jay, in those interviews over the course of four years, talks with like this very consistent corporate vision of like, I'm going to accomplish these things. Like, I'm going to, I, basically like, I'm going to found an empire based strictly off of music and it's going to be this lasting black enterprise and reasonable doubt is like the blueprint for you know hip-hop as a generator of black wealth and 
there are certain ways that you can look at Jay-Z's career between reasonable doubt all the way to watch the throne as like a cash grab and think that that's a bad thing. I think Jay-Z, based on how he talks about himself, would tell you that like, well, this is the point, right? Like you go from selling, you go go from selling heroin to selling music and yeah, in a lot of ways, he, you know, he is this crass materialist who at this point in his career in 2016, we sort of look at Askew and think this guy is just one big marketing opportunity. But like the vision that allowed him to get to that place is something he pursued in a time where it was not super obvious that a guy like Jay-Z would be able to to do any of the stuff that he does now to launch a, a streaming music service or, you know, to get into sports management. It, you know, it's it's kind of crazy how prophetic 20 years ago Jay-Z was, like, talking with this utmost confidence about what he was going to spend the next 20 years trying to do on the strength of his music. I think that's a fascinating point. There's one small wrinkle to this, which is that he's also an incredible artist. So even right. though it seems like this cynical, professional, corporate strategy, he's also a tremendous writer and a tremendous uh, phraser. There, he, he has an ability that is incredibly unique. So the fusion of those two ideas, you know, you, you talk a little bit about how later artists tried to adopt some of his strategies or all of his strategies and, and you know, succeeded and failed to varying degrees. What do you see as sort of the lasting influence of not just the record, but the rhetoric and the, the strategy that Jay-Z created? Well, people credit and blame Jay-Z for lots of stuff, right? Like, you know, uh, it's weird. If you talk to young rappers now, I feel like like everyone has that sense of like you you get into rap music to make money, and, and you know there are plenty of rappers who that may be all talk and it might be bravado, and they really like writing in their notepads or they really like you know rapping over beats. But that that whole attitude of rap is a thing that you can get into either on the side of hustling or as a form of hustling, like that. That's that's totally a common attitude among contemporary street rappers, and I feel like has been an attitude among rappers, you know, ever ever since Jay Z. And Jay talk, Jay talks about this in Decoded, which um, you know he and Dream Hampton produced together. Um, we should say it's a, a memoir and, and a book. A memoir, yeah. right? It's the. Did you like Decoded? Because I actually read it. I skimmed it. I, it has good. It has gems in it. I like it. Yeah, yeah, I like it. I don't buy it on a Kindle though. It's a it, it's oh, a unique yeah, it's right. a unique experiment for an artist. I don't think it's a hundred percent successful, but it's it's cool that he actually tried to do it. There, there's another conversation about the Black Book, which was never published. Uh, ah. Which uh, you know that's a, maybe a longer conversation, but that is his his next memoir that featured maybe a little bit more detail about some of the more nefarious parts of his life before he was famous. Right. Well, I mean, I think. You know, it, it's funny because in Decoded, Jay tries to tackle that. He says, you know, he says a lot of people after me and a lot of people that were contemporaries to him got into rap with this sort of very upfront, explicit interest in I'm going to do this to get out of the hood. And he's conflicted about it. Right. He says, I don't I don't really know that this is the greatest reason to produce art. Um, and mind you. You know, Jay is saying this, he's writing this at a point where he is successful like six times over, <laughs> approximately. Um, and even he's conflicted about it. And I'm conflicted about it. You know, when I think back on Jay-Z, 
you know, I, I'm conflicted about the fact that uh, it, it's like the same the same guy I'm making fun of for being in, you know, super over over promoted Samsung partnership to release Magna Carta Holy Grail is also the guy who made Watch the Throne with Kanye. And that album has a lot of crass materialism that sort of in it's sort of shot through with the most self-awareness that Jay-Z has infused in his music since Kingdom Come or you know since the Black Album. Um so I don't I don't know that I'm totally uncomfortable with what success has done to Jay and and what it's done to his music and how it's made him sound. Um I don't know maybe it's just like impossible to age gracefully. Maybe it's impossible to age gracefully and win gracefully. This is a perfect segue end. to Sean's piece. <laughs> yeah, Sean's piece, which opens with a very vivid scene uh, of a very private. How did you get invited to that listening party, by the way? But it was a very private listening party for uh, Watch the Throne. I, I I just got an email from uh, from from Jay's publicist. <laughs> yeah, um, sweet. It was nice. It was fun. Um, but yeah, in your piece, you kind of uh, you know uh, use you know it's Jay Z at forty and beyond, and how Watch the Throne might have been his last great album yeah you know i was thinking about what what justin wrote and how you know jay influenced 50 and jay influenced drake and you can sort of see these these glimmers these reverberations of the plan that he set forth but um as recently as five years ago he was still still a very meaningful artist and um i saw him it was i think it was the third time i have been at a, a session like this with him um and i had i was at a session a very an even smaller session for american gangster which was very entertaining and at the time he was even it's more relaxed with the spotted pig yeah wait talk about the american gangster one too cuz you didn't write about that i didn't so write about that um, let's dwell on this for a second the american gangster one was i think announced even more quickly and there was only like six people there and it was in a studio and he was very, very proud of the album in a way that was different from Watch the Throne. He, he because that album was so self-consciously a callback to Reasonable Doubt, and that movie had inspired him, or at least that's what he said. He was he was basking. I mean, he was clowning every person in the room. He <laughs> he would stand up in the middle of tracks and just like walk away. Like he just it, he was like Steph Curry hitting the three and just turning around and running down the court before it even goes through the net. So that was an interesting version of him to see. The one it, the one for Watch the Throne was different insofar as he was very calm he was laughing a little bit he was he was like i'm 40 and i'm still great and i was smart enough to hitch my wagon to kanye in this very specific way and i think what you said justin is is right which is that that's a very materialistic record it's a but it's it's triumphant and self-aware in a way that makes you excited about it you know if you escaped what i escaped you'd be in paris getting fucked up too is such a resonant line for me because it is a callback and it is about the future you know it's 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 fun and smart and strange and it doesn't alienate anybody even though it's about wealth um but yeah i mean in that session he was he was the best version of himself that i have seen and he knew he had something and it's kind of strange to look back on that moment now because I would say the last five years have been not great. Um, I'm not sure. Let's go into let's go into that not great because I think you very clinically break down you know the five years since Watch the Throne and his various missteps. Um, Yeah, I don't want to make a too unkind a um, a judgment on this, but I think that there is something that happens when people have children and their lives um, they change. You know, they they can't commit to 
their professional lives as well because their personal lives are much more important and children are much more important. And this is not a direct correlation, but it's interesting that right after Watch the Throne, Beyonce announced that she was pregnant. Blue Ivy is born at the top of 2012. Jay sort of goes into a cave somewhat. I mean, he's still a public figure, but he's not producing a lot of art. And he sort of takes the year off. 2013 rolls around. And soon Magna Carta Holy Grail is announced. Woof. Yeah. And as Justin alluded to, it is sort of this corporate synergistic Samsung deal, which feels less like a record and more like, you know, a delivery system for an app. Um, and, I, you know, what do you guys think about that record? I, I, I listened to it a lot this week and I really wanted to come in with some sort of unique take on like, <laughs> there's something, there's some truth inside of this album. He unlocked a new part of his persona, but like, I couldn't find anything. We, me, Justin I, and I were talking about this before that like the internet is dying for a Magna Carta is actually a classic. <laughs> hot take, <laughs> hot yeah. take. I, I, I mean, it's I, weird. I agree with the... Tepid take. My, it's weird because I think the best songs on Magna Carta are Beaches Better and Verses. So a total, a grand whopping 120 seconds of... <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> it's total. That's It's two minutes total, both of those songs, which are basically snippets. Donnie, what do you, what do you think of that album? Um, you know, I'll be honest, I don't know the album very well at all. Uh, I did go actually to see Jay-Z at Barclays where he performed the album in its entirety. And I was very depressed that, you know, there was a time where I knew literally every word Jay-Z had rapped over the course of his entire career. And I really knew nothing of that album. And it sounded shitty. (laughs) Yeah, I think back on, there were two interesting things about it. One, the ad campaign before it came out was... Very clever, but I think he was still clowned immediately. There was a lot of shots of him in the studio vibing with Rick Rubin and sort of like them <laughs> nodding their heads together as if they had recorded Cashmere Thoughts Part 2. And right. the other thing is that um, that album has a lot of Timbaland on it, and it it's five years after Timbaland mattered anymore. Um, and I, I wonder if if he had gone in a different direction, say he if he had spent more time with Swizz Beats or if there was more more Kanye records on it or more pharrell williams records on it if he had gotten a little friendlier with mike will made it I, i'm it probably I, I see that's something that we can talk about because i think that that is actually what's around the corner i think that there's yeah. going to be a lot of like atlanta trap rap coming in whatever he decides to do next because he knows that that is the wave um but yeah well, ma- how, how is jay-z's 2016 been for you guys <laughs> I have I have shared some positive opinions about the handful of verses he's done um and been laughed at by charity. So uh, Justin what what what's what, what do you think? 2016 Jay-Z it never happened. <laughs> it never happened. It's not that bad, man. It never happened. Well, I think you can't talk about it's, it's not Magna Carta Holy Grail levels, but it is it's sort of instead of the way that I think Magna Carta Holy Grail uh, really rubbed people the wrong way on a marketing uh, front. I think the stuff that Jay has done this year has been less clouded by, um, you know, bad marketing like that, but it's just sort of inconsequential. Like uh, Jay on the Pusha T song, Jay on the All the Way Up remix. You know, it's funny because I actually want to double down on something you said a minute ago, though, Sean, the idea of of kids and how that sort of resets your creative arc. I a thing that complicates that is the fact that Beyonce has made great music. It's very <laughs> since, true. Since, uh, you know, 
they had Blue Ivy. I was going to say the, lem- so, the lemonade in the room here, right? Yeah, the, the Beyonce self-titled and then the, the, the Lemonade album, you know, I feel like Beyonce is, is carrying, carrying the creative weight here in a way that, that creates a wrinkle in your theory. But I don't know. What do, you, what do you think accounts for that divergence in the, I think now, incomparable uh, relevance of the music that Beyonce is making while, and it, it could just be that, you know, it's because Jay is also older than Beyonce. But I'm curious what you think about about that contrast. Yeah, it's a. I have a note written down here that says I enjoyed listening to Lemonade while writing this, and not any Jay Z songs. And <laughs> I, I mean, that is how I feel too. I, I think that you're right that she sort that destroys the whole concept of being less creative after you've had children or less committed because Beyonce actually in the last three to four years has been, I would argue, at her best artistically, the, at her most creative, at her most daring, at her most interesting, and I think the thing about Lemonade is. I can't yet tell how much it is shattering the persona that Jay worked so hard to create. And, you know, you guys talked about the way that he branded himself and messaged himself 20 years ago. And something like this, a record like this, that is so raw and so specific about things he may have done wrong that would turn people against him, seems like the exact opposite thing he'd be striving against in 1996. And the fact that we are all accepting that Jay-Z cheated on Beyonce, who is one of the most protected people, at least in the world of the internet, and, (laughs) you know, can release an all the way up remix, and people are like, oh, this is pretty good, or it's not bad, I don't know, is is an interesting thing to me. You know, the fact that we are already moving on from that conversation, I, I wonder how he will recover, or if he even has to recover. What do you guys think? I mean, it is disconcerting in a way, I think, to see Jay lose control of his narrative, uh, in, in a way that he hasn't ever before. So, especially because he's and we talked about this offline. Like Jay, I've always read Jay as a control freak, mm-hmm. right? He seems like a guy who, like, the idea of controlling one's personal narrative is a core function of what makes Jay Z work and what has made him succeed over everyone, including his former business partners over the past 20 years. And so, yeah, you're right. It's sort of, it is, it, it, it's very interesting to watch Jay-Z, I want to say, yeah, ever since Magna Carta, and but especially through Lemonade, sort of just lose, just lose control of the play. Yeah, I wrote about, uh, during the Watch of the Throne session, he had a look on his face, like he knew something that we didn't. And I don't know if he can ever credibly have that look on his face ever again even though he's has 500 million dollars and is large, incredibly successful and an icon and a great artist and everything else it, it, somehow there is that, that awkwardness where when you have a friend whose marriage is falling apart or who has done something terrible and you know about it and they know that you know it creates an, an incredibly awkward tension and i suspect that that's going to be true for him for a while right like what do you do you think kanye and jay have discussed the last three months of Jay-Z's life? I hope not. I hope Jay-Z is not trying to get advice from Kanye West about <laughs> how, to, how to regain control of his narrative. But it's interesting because Kanye, to I guess to his credit, it's hard to say if it's to his credit, but he never lets things like this affect him. I mean, he, he, he freaks out, but he never loses his grip because he, he is unafraid to flail. He is unafraid to shout, to yell, to scream about how he is the one who's in control. 
And that is so anathema to what Jay is about. You know, Jay doesn't come out and deny rumors. You know what I mean? Right. Anyway, it's um, it's interesting. I wonder what what this means for a Jay Z album. Do you, do you guys want a Jay Z album? Uh, no. Pregnant pause right there. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not. I wouldn't reject one. I wouldn't reject one. I obviously prefer to remember him in his heyday. Uh, but you know, I don't want to be too down on Jay Z since he did basically raise me and a bunch of people. I think. <laughs> What we said, or Sean, you said earlier, is that uh, the backbone of this is his insane talent. I mean, he's in the 99.9999 percentile of anybody who's ever picked up a mic to rap. We're all in, in agreement with that, right? Yeah, for sure. I would like to, you know what, and I know it's become a sort of corny, overhyped meme at this point, but I actually do want the Beyonce J album, if only because I think that you know, I think a problem that Jay-Z has now is that his aesthetic is so... Even even if his influence is obvious, right? It's He influenced not one but two generations of rappers and of consumers of pop culture generally. But I feel like musically, you know, Jay-Z trying to compete with Drake or Jay-Z trying to ride a wave with Kendrick or with Future... It just seems so, it, it always seems last gaspy to me. Like, to me, the best that Jay has really sounded in the past, you know, well, has sounded since Watch the Throne is, you know, doing stuff with Jeezy or doing stuff with Rick Ross, where it's like, okay, there's a there's a bit more of a, like, Jay is the bigger guy in this combination, but he's working with someone that's closer to his Wait, age Has range. that future Khaled thing come out? Not yet. Not yet. So I guess that's the next. <laughs> yeah, that's the next. But that's the thing. That's and the next that, thing for people to ignore. Right. Then that's what, what Sean is hinting at. But to me, it's like, I think, you know, I think in terms of working with artists who are popping in the mainstream, when Jay works with other younger rappers, I, I just don't think it sticks. I think his aesthetic is too far out of that sort of pop, uh, out of that trap. Uh, and trap crossover wave whereas i think when jay makes songs with beyonce it still works so to me beyonce is his one open portal to making songs with an artist who is still huge and popping now that he actually sounds uh like he has some modicum of studio chemistry with as opposed to you know, awkwardly hopping on a Drake song with Kanye and everyone being like, one, why is Jay-Z rapping like 2 Chains?" to a degree that I thought this was 2 Chains on a record, but it's Jay-Z, and two, why is he only spitting two bars on this record? <laughs> that was very, very strange. The thing that, that I'm, I'm looking forward to slash dreading is in the past when Jay has gotten on younger artist tracks, he has managed to draw a lot of the gravity in his direction, or at least has attempted to. Even even people who were at the time considered like more eccentric, like Lil Wayne, I wonder if something like a person like Young Thug, if Jay could even exist on a track with someone like that, who has pushed the direction of rap in such a in such a way that Jay seems com- almost completely obviated from the genre. Like he, he has no relationship to what Young Thug is doing, and I do think if he is going to make a bid to do something that is forward-looking, he's going to lean in that direction. So I, I kind of anticipated, even though it likely would be terrible. 
It's like his John Travolta Pulp Fiction moment waiting to happen. He should be so lucky. That would be. Yeah, yeah. He should be so lucky. But I mean, okay, so I think a, a potential Jay Z Young Thug collaboration has the same problem though of of the you know the forthcoming DJ Khaled future Jay Z collaboration, which is that. It's not just that, oh, it's a new school, right? And there's there's new directions in hip-hop. It's that the specific innovation that we're talking about when we talk about Future Young Thug is basically, like, melodic innovation. And it's just not, you know, Jay-Z's a lyricist. He's a rapper in this sort of more conversational sense. And there's a lot of conversation and great lyrical prowess to Young Thug's rapping or to Future's rapping. But the thing that they do that is just I think incompatible with Jay-Z is that they're doing things with their voice that I feel like Jay-Z would walk in a studio where Young Thug is basically singing and rapping at the same time. And I don't know that Jay-Z even knows what to do with his voice uh, in, in a way that sounds compatible with, compatible with that style of delivery. You just painted a very sad mental picture of Jay-Z walking Walk. in the studio, seeing Young Thug and feeling like, I'm fucking washed. Like, Jay-Z can hit those notes. <laughs> Jay- that's that's basically what I'm saying. Jay-Z, Jay-Z cannot hit those Young Thug notes, right? Like He can't hit those. He can't do that gravelly, you know, uh, deep space rap singing thing. He just can't do it. He's a guy who knows how to put words together. But I've never, even, you know, even... On great Jay-Z records, the thing that stands out is not really how he uses his voice. And that's the thing about what rapper, what contemporary rappers have done to push the genre forward. It's mostly about interesting ways in which they deploy their voice. And that's that's what would seem strange about hearing Young Thug and Jay-Z. Good point. Guys, it's 2016. Jay-Z doesn't go into the studio with Young Thug. Young Thug emails him a verse <laughs> and he puts it on his record, if that. Um so we've talked about the future. Let's let's go back to the past for one second, just to wrap things up. I'd like to know what your favorite reasonable doubt song is, and be concise. But I, I'm curious because I think it will say a little bit about you. Me first. Yeah, Donnie, go ahead. I uh, I like politics as usual. Track number two. Uh, I love the beat. I think it's like it, it epitomizes the ethos and the sound of the album, um, lyrically impeccable and just listenable for 20 years straight. Justin, what about you? Uh, I'd say the album version of Dead Presidents. Dead Presidents too. Um, it's just such a, I mean, I think on all fronts, right? Like the production of it is so dreamy and it, it, it does the thing that I, I think of that distinguishes Reasonable Doubt from Ready to Die, which is like, it's this fantastical song that it's a fantastical sort of luxurious song in which Jay-Z has like one foot in the one side of the street and another foot in the other side of the street. And it's like this guy sounds like the most luxurious guy in the world, but he's actually rapping about a sort of bleak outlook and he's rapping from this place of, of desperation still. But it sounds like the smoothest shit you've ever heard in your life. Um, and I, I, I don't know, I love that tension of reasonable doubt of the fact that it's kind of ambiguous whether Jay-Z is a guy on, on the come up or is he a guy that has already come up? Like that's, that to me is the, the weird middle ground that that album occupies. And I, I, it's very romantic, I guess. And that's a very romantic song to me on a lot of levels. 
My choice would be uh, Can I Live because I am an aspirational East Coaster and <laughs> my brain is fried to a fricassee. So this has been a, uh, a reasonable pod. I want to thank Donnie Kwok and Justin Charity for chatting and um, turn on Reasonable Doubt today if you can find it and don't have a title subscription because it is, it is a great time. Thanks again, guys. <laughs>